from Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 6. And you can find it on page 962. Robin God. I, the Lord, do not change. Sure you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse. The whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into your storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the fines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You, will, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who serve God and those who do not. We're going to pray for others now, so let's pray. The psalmist says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a refuge for us. Thank you that you are faithful and unchanging, and we can trust in you at all times. And so this evening, we pour out our hearts before you. We pray for the UK government and for all who will be involved in the upcoming general election. We pray for peace and stability in our country during times of uncertainty. And we pray through this election that you would raise up godly men and women who will stand up and speak for you in public life. Closer to home, we pray for all who have been involved in the recent political talks at Stormont. We continue to pray that a government will be formed here, and we ask that those involved in the talks would know your love, grace, and wisdom. Thank you, Father, that you are a refuge. 
Father, we thank you for yesterday's big gather event organised by Scripture Union for all who are volunteering at SU camps and missions this summer. Thank you for the work of SU amongst children and young people in Northern Ireland, both on an ongoing basis through its schools work and in the unique context of summer camps and missions. We pray for all from our congregation who will be involved in summer teams this year through SU and other organisations, both in Northern Ireland and beyond. Thank you for the opportunity to share your gospel with many children and young people. And we pray that by your grace, you would use summer camps and missions to bring many kids and young people to know you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those in our church family who are teachers, school pupils and university students. As many prepare to return to school this week after the Easter break, we pray that our schools would be places of safety. We pray for Christian staff and students that they would shine for you where you have placed them. And we pray for those in our church family who are preparing for school or university exams in the coming term. Would you equip them with all that they need to study well? And would they have a sense of your presence and peace in the weeks that lie ahead? Thank you, Father, that you are our refuge. We ask that you would help each of us in the week ahead to trust in you at all times. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you to Mark and to Rachel and to Sarah and everybody else who took part in the first half of the service and for leading us so well to this point. Let's just pray before we go any further. Father God, what we sang there is the desire of our hearts that you would be glorified in us, in our very lives. And so as we come, now, Lord, to look at your word together, as we expectantly wait for you to speak to us, we pray that you would give us hearts and minds to hear what it is you have to say to us, and then give us the strength to carry that out in our lives as we seek to go and glorify you. Lead us this evening, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're returning tonight in our series in the book of Malachi, and if you have your Bibles open or if you can grab one and turn it to Malachi chapter 3, you'll probably find it helpful having it open at verses 6 to 18 to follow along in the text. And it was Easter Sunday last week, we took a break, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Malachi, and I know there's some people who can't make it every week, so let's just have a quick reminder about what we've looked at so far, about what this prophecy from God through Malachi has been saying to us so far. And the context really is that God's people at this time were in a sort of downward spiral, a downward spiral away from Him. And this prophecy, it's a message from God to his people. It's sometime after the rebuilding of the temple, but a good 500 years or so before Jesus. And God's people in that time were turning away from God because they doubted his love. They doubted his goodness. They doubted that he was really doing much of anything for them. And this doubt of God manifested itself in how they lived out their lives. 
And so if you've been here on Sunday evenings over the past few weeks, you've seen how they've been offering inadequate sacrifices to God. They've been inadequate in their ministry and how they are witnessing for him. They were inadequate in their position towards being faithful in their marriages. They weren't trusting God. They weren't concerned for justice. They weren't living the way that God's people had been called to live. They doubted God's love. They doubted his goodness. And so they became half-hearted in their worship and essentially rebelled against God and rejected him. And this book of the Old Testament hasn't been shy in facing up to the realities of what this has meant for God's people. Again, when we last looked at it just two weeks ago, we were thinking about a question of judgment and of the very strong reality of the coming judgment and of what that looks like for those who reject God. It has been very clear on God's attitude towards sin, and it hasn't always been pleasant to read. But tonight, as Mark introduced for us so helpfully, as we turn to the second half of chapter 3, we move from a question of judgment to a question of returning. We saw the reality of judgment two weeks ago with Damien, and tonight we're looking how God, in His grace, calls His people to return to Him to end this downward spiral away from him and to embrace the full reality of who God is and what he has done and the promises that he makes. And for us, we're going to see tonight how important the exact same message is for us. Because yes, this prophecy was given to a particular people at a particular time in a particular place and in some ways things are different yet the human condition largely remains the same. We, like God's people then, are, we're prone to forgetting about God's goodness and his love. We, like God's people then, are prone to being half-hearted in our response to him. We, like God's people then, need to not rebel against him, but to constantly return to him. And so this passage this evening has very much to say to us as well. So we're just going to work our way through the text, through verses 6 to 18, and I want to highlight just three things that God is saying to his people here um, in three different sections. And the first thing we're going to see in looking at verses 6 to 12 in particular is God saying, don't rob God, return to him. And many of you here tonight, um, your parents your grandparents or your aunts or uncles or you've worked with children or young people at some stage in life and if you've spent much time with children or even teenagers at certain stages well you'll have noticed how easily and how quickly they can turn against you you can be a toddler's best mate one second you're playing all the games with them you th they think you're the bee's knees they love you to bits and then the minute you tell them they can't have any more ice cream, they turn on you very quickly. And instantly they forget all of the good things that you did that morning. They forget all of the kind things you did for them. They forget all of the good times. And all they remember is that you've stopped them getting what they want. And they think you're some sort of a monster. 
And we expect this from children, don't we? It's part of growing up. It's part of learning how to interact with people. It's annoying, but you know it's just how they react sometimes. But we don't expect this from adults. Maybe it happens sometimes, you say, but we don't expect that your wife or your work colleague or someone in the church who gets on really well with you and you say one thing that they don't like and they instantly turn against you. They forget all of the good things that you've ever done and they see only the bad in you. That's not what we expect to happen. And yet in some ways, this is actually exactly what God's people are doing in the book of Malachi. This is exactly how they're treating God. They're acting like spoiled toddlers. They're huffing because things aren't going exactly the way that they thought they would go in life. And not only are they not happy about it, but they're forgetting all that God has done. They're forgetting all the good gifts that he has already given to them. They're forgetting who he really is and only focusing on the fact that their lives aren't exactly what they thought they would be. So look at how God addresses them in verse six. I, the Lord, do not change. Whatever problems and issues you think you have with me, know this. I am the same today as I was yesterday and as I will be tomorrow. My will is the same. My goodness is the same. My holiness is the same. I don't know what you're expecting, but I, the Lord, do not change. And I have not changed. And he begins here. He begins by establishing that with them because this is really good news. If we had a God who constantly changed his mind, his mood, his standards, his expectations, that it would be impossible to know how to respond to him or to trust him. But precisely because the Lord does not change, we can trust in him completely. A.W. Pink put it this way, however unstable I may be, However fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by impulse, who could confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. The Lord does not change. Let's continue on in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, or therefore you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And again, he goes a bit further. And what is God doing here? What does he call them? He calls them children, descendants of Jacob. And he does this to remind them that they are his chosen people. I do not change, and you are still my people. And just as I chose Jacob over Esau, which we saw back in chapter one, so you are my chosen people. You will not be destroyed. And although you are unfaithful, I am unchanging. I am always faithful to the promises I have made. And what a comforting reminder this should be to God's people. You may have turned from me, but I am the unchanging God whose promises still stand. So return to me, he says in verse 7. 
There is no mistaking their unfaithfulness. Look at what he says. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and not kept them. But it doesn't have to be this way, God says. Return to me and I will return to you. And so despite their constant running from God, God calls them to return to him. He doesn't give up on them. How do they respond? Well, as they have the whole way throughout the book, they don't understand how are we to return. We've seen throughout that they never really grasp what it is they've done wrong. They don't know what it means to turn back to God because they're not entirely aware of how they have turned away from him in the first place. And so we look at verse 8, and we see that God gives a concrete example. Here is how you have turned from me. Here is how you've dishonored me. Look at verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. This is a strong thing that God is saying to his people. You are robbing me. You are stealing from me. And they ask indignantly, how is this? We don't understand. And he says, by not giving me what I am owed. By not bringing me tithes and offerings. And this is so important to get right. When we do not give to God what is owed to him, We are robbing him. We are stealing from the Lord Almighty. And what is it that we owe God? Well, here it's specifically talking about tithes and offerings. But think of just what we know that we owe to God. Think of all that God has done for us. We owe to God our trust. We owe to God our love. We owe to God our service, our obedience, our worship, our very selves. And when we are stingy, or when we hold back in any of these areas, we are robbing God. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What about Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1? For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God has given everything for us. We were bought at a great price. We were bought with the blood of his very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we owe everything to him because he has given everything for us. And so when we hold anything back, whether it be our money or our lives or our worship, we are robbing God of what he is due. 
Look at verse 9. This wasn't just a few rogue members of God's people, but the whole nation were stingy with God, holding back in their tithes and offerings. In those days, tithes and offerings were crucial to provide financial support for the temple, for the priests, for the services, and for the poor and the needy within the community. And not to give to these causes was to steal, to rob from God. And their attitude, God's people at this time, was not one of stewardship, where they saw everything that they had in life as a gift from God to be used for His glory, but was one of ownership, where this is mine, and I worked for it, and I'm going to do with it as I please. They valued gifts from God much more than you valued the giver of these gifts. And so God says in verse 9 that they are cursed. And isn't this just such a temptation for us as well? To hold back from God. To not give Him all that He is due. And we're not under the Mosaic law as they were. We aren't required to give a tenth or a tithe in the same way today. But what we are called to do, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, is to give proportionately compared to what we have and to give sacrificially according to the grace we have been shown. And so for many of us, actually, our giving could quite fairly and easily be much more than a traditional 10%, not less. It would be easy for me to spend a lot of time talking about giving and money, but that's not really what this passage is about, and I don't want to get bogged down there. But the principle that comes across here is clear that we are not, we dare not be stingy with God because He knows our hearts. He knows if we're giving out of a sense of burden or out of glad and thankful hearts. And as I said, and as Mark said as well, this goes not just for our money, but also for our time, our obedience, our worship, our entire lives. We're not to rob God. How are we to respond? Look at verses 10 to 12. We are to return to him. God challenges his people to stop holding back and in doing so to test me in this, he says. He promises that if they as a people honor him, he will honor them again. He will show his faithfulness. He will, look at verse 10, open the floodgates of heaven with so much blessing that you won't have room for it. Look at verse 11, he will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. And he's saying, you think that holding back from me is wise? You think that saving things for yourself is what's best for you? You think being stingy will provide for you all that you need? Well, we didn't see what happens when you're generous. We didn't see what happens when you stop robbing from me. We didn't see what happens when you come back to me. I'm going to show you how trusting in me is so much better. And of course, we have to be very careful with a passage such as this one. And when we read the Bible, it's important to distinguish between descriptive passages that tell us how God worked in a particular way at a particular time 
and prescriptive passages that outline how we are to act today. And what's happening here in Malachi 3 is a description. It's a description of what God did with those people in that time. And we have to be careful that we don't take a passage like this and try and use it to inform all we need to know about giving and receiving from God. And we know that many prosperity preachers are keen to use a passage such as this one to say that if you give to God, you will get back so much materially in this life. But we know when we look at the witness of the whole of the Scriptures that this isn't the case. And so God was testing them in this way. He was going to show His grace to them in this way, but that isn't for us to assume it works the same for us. It would be a disaster if there was a poor but righteous person thinking that their poverty represented the curse of God. And it would be disaster for an arrogant, wealthy person to think that their wealth meant that God approved of all of their behavior. And so again, what's important in this description is the principle that comes out. Don't rob God. Return to Him. Don't be stingy with God. And when you have held back, His promises still stand. And He's waiting for you to come back to Him. Don't rob God. Return to Him. And the second thing we see, moving on to verses 13 through to 15, is don't be self-centered. Be God-centered. Look at verse 13, and we see God's next accusation against the people. You have said harsh things against me. And yet again, the people, they're in denial about how they're treating God. They're unaware of their sins. They always doubt God. They're slow to learn, and they keep making the same mistake. But what they're doing is they are bad-mouthing God and complaining about Him to anyone who will listen. And yet God persists with them. Look at their complaints in verses 14 and 15. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. What have we gained, I ask? We've been God's people for all this time and our life is no better than anyone else's. And they are fundamentally self-centered and not God-centered. Their concern is entirely about what they are getting from God and it isn't enough for them. In verse 15, we see that they look at the people around them. They see arrogant people. They see evil people. They see people rejecting God and they're doing just fine. They're putting God to the test and they seem to be escaping His judgment. Well, if they're getting away with it, why shouldn't we? In fact, we seem to be doing worse than them, and this isn't fair. And again, isn't this an easy thing for us to think as well? In work, I've been really honest. I've tried to do my best to honor God in my work, and yet the guy who lies and does sneaky deals get the promotion that I deserved. I raised my kids the best I could, trying to get them to follow God, and yet they disrespect me, and they don't treat me as well as my friends' kids, and they never go to church. 
I'm so busy in ministry and church life. I'm doing all these things for God, and yet I'm struggling to make ends meet. While the arrogant and the evil are prospering, this isn't fair. And yet this view is entirely self-centered. It is not God-centered. God's test me in this, back in verse 10, is about repenting, returning, and trusting. It's about surrendering to God again and trusting in His plans and His promises and His purposes and His timing. And God's people in Malachi, they weren't interested in giving their lives over to God. They're interested in how much they can get away with while still getting His blessings. The commentator puts it this way, comparing ourselves with others will always leave us either discontented or arrogant. We can compare ourselves with people who have more than we have, and this will make us discontented. Or we could choose people who have less than we have, and this would make us arrogant. Comparisons are odious. And so instead of focusing so much on ourselves and what we have in comparison to others, we should focus on God. But we love to do two things. We love, first of all, to make a list of what we have done for God, of all the good, nice church things we have done in our lives, so that it can be clear that He must reward us. And then we also love to list all of the things that God hasn't done for us, all of the unfulfilled wishes and wants. Instead, wouldn't it be much better to list all of the things that God has done for you? In fact, why don't you try that this week? Why don't you find some time and sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and simply start listing all of the gifts that God has given to you in life? And it will change your week to have that right perspective, to be focused on what God has done. Look at all that He has done for you. We are here to serve God. God is not here to serve us, as those in this time felt. And yet, don't we know even more than that? Don't we know that when we look at the Lord Jesus, that He became a servant for us, that He became obedient to death, even death on a cross? And so how much more should we want to be servants in return? We are incredibly self-centered. Yet the message here is clear. Don't rob God, return to Him. Don't be self-centered, worried only about yourself, but be God-centered, focused on all that He has done. And then thirdly and finally, in verses 16 to 18, we see that we are to trust in God's promises. So look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. And this is the first time in the book of Malachi, as we've been working through it, that we see a positive response to Malachi's message from God. 
Up to now, all they've been given back is questions. How have we done that? How have we done that? This doesn't make sense. And here we see those who feared the Lord turning back to Him. And it's familiar to us anyway, even though it's the first time we've seen it in Malachi, because every time in the Bible when God's people rebel, there is always a faithful remnant those who respond to God's Word with faith and obedience. And isn't that exactly what happens here? They feared the Lord, it said. They honored His name. They spoke with each other, highlighting the importance of community and mutual encouragement, which we thought about this morning. And look at verses 17 and 18 and what God says about His people. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, and the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And this echo, this beautiful echo of God's people's names being recorded of God's people belonging to Him, of being God's treasured possession is the hope and the promise that we cling to as Christians and it's seen throughout the Bible. Think of Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The same love that set the captives free. I think of Romans 11. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Or of the very last book of the Bible in Revelation 21 when God is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. He says nothing impure will enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And God is making clear to his people through Malachi that the day of the Lord is coming. And we will think about this much more next week with Damien. But there will be a day when the difference between his people and those who have rejected him forever will be totally clear. And here and now, what we need to do is to trust in God's promises that we can turn to him and be his people and have hope in the face of that day of judgment. And for those in Malachi's day, this was the promise that God doesn't change, that if you return to him, he will not forget you, but will forgive you and restore you. And for us, we know even more clearly what that promise meant because we have seen it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So don't rob God. Return to Him. Don't be self-centered, but be God-centered. And when we fail at that, as we do and we will, trust in God's promises. His promise that even though we have turned our backs on Him, He never turned His back on us. That on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath and the judgment and the death that our sins deserve. 
so that we can be forgiven. And when we see what Jesus has done, when we see all that he has done for us, well, the circle comes back round. How could we rob God? How could we not respond by giving everything we have back to him? How could we be stingy with our money or our time or any aspect of our lives? How could we be self-centered when we see how selfless Jesus became for us? And so no matter where you're at tonight with your relationship with God, whether you've never trusted in him before, whether you trusted him a long time ago but things have gone dry, or if you're doing your best and just need encouragement, if you're on a downward spiral away from him, the answer is the same for each of us. We are to return to him, to give all of our lives over to him, to trust in his promises, and to know the deep satisfaction, hope, and life, both now and forever, that that brings. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you spoke through your prophet Malachi all of those years ago, that it was recorded, that we may read from it tonight and we may hear from you. We thank you that your word is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword and that it can cut right to our hearts to challenge and speak to us. And so, Father, you know our hearts. You know the different situations from which we all come this evening. You know that for each of us, our greatest need is to keep returning to you. To keep giving our lives over to you. Even when we fail to trust in your promises and to come back to you again and again. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that all that he did for us on the cross. We thank you that through his sacrifice for us, we can know you, we can be forgiven, and we can have eternal hope. Help us, Lord, to live in light of that, to live as your servants and your people. Remind us daily, Lord, how we are not our own, but that we were bought as a price and how we live our lives is how we give back to you. Lead us in service of you, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's say the grace together. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.